Okay, let's go ahead and get started, if we could, please. Our Father, we do give praise to your name this morning. We're so thankful to be able to come together as the body of Christ. Thank you for your scriptures and how they speak to us, how they're pertinent to the things that are going on in the world today. Thank you for the writing of Daniel and the visions that you gave him that inform us about yet future events. Lord, thank you how you have fulfilled many of these through history, and we can see it unfolded uh, in the past, and yet still more to come. So Lord, we are grateful to be here this morning. Pray that you would guide our thinking about chapter 9 as we move into it, that you would use it to speak to our hearts, to inform our understanding. Lord, and more than any of that, please give us the desire and the ability to incorporate these things into our thinking such that it would affect the way that we live today. And so, Lord, uh, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and how even Daniel writes about that in this chapter. May we worship him in truth this morning. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. So this is week number 34 in our study in the book of Daniel, and we just keep inching our way through this. Uh, last week, we kind of stood back and looked at chapters 7 and 8 in, uh, in a broader viewpoint, just trying to gain our bearings before we go into chapter 9. And you'll remember that in chapter 7, there were four beasts, and in chapter 8, there are two beasts, and actually, the two beasts of chapter 8 are the middle two beasts, numbers 2 and 3, of chapter 7. So Daniel, God gave Daniel first the vision of all the beasts, and then he focused in on those middle two beasts to give him more details, that he could give us more details. And so we could see that what was written about the second and third beast have actually taken place in the past and have been fulfilled, meaning that what he's written about the fourth beast in chapter 7 will also be fulfilled. We have that confidence uh, based upon what we've seen in chapter 8. And so we, we just tried to stand back, and one of the things that we saw was that many of the events, many of the actions that are taken in chapter 7 and 8 um, show up again in the book of Revelation. So God gave Daniel his visions and John his visions, and there's a lot of linkage between the things that we see in Revelation and what we see in Daniel chapter 7 and 8. The same will be true um, in chapter 9, that we'll see some of the activities that take place there are pretty clear, I think, uh, in what they indicate, although men make a lot of arguments about it that it's not what I'll teach that it is. So um, we'll talk about some of those as we get into it. But hopefully with, uh, with that broad understanding that we're talking about uh, the Babylonian kingdom, Medo-Persian kingdom, the kingdom of Greece, and then that of Rome um, are what's being discussed in these visions in, in the book of Daniel. And so we've, in time frame wise, in history, we've um, completed up through um, the Greek kingdoms. 
and the end of the Greek kingdoms, which one of those was the Seleucid kingdom where uh, Antiochus was king of. And so that's kind of where we're at in history. Um, just uh, 150 years or so before Jesus Christ was born. So uh, we've moved through a lot of history and that's where the visions have taken us. So um, this morning we'll begin to walk through chapter nine. So what I'd like to do to start is just read the, uh, the first eight verses of chapter nine and you'll see that um, the language here is very different and because this is um, actually a prayer that Daniel begins um, for specific reasons and we'll see those in the text. So beginning in Daniel 9 verse 1, in the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, open shame. As it is this day, the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. So you can see the, I mean, the tenor of this is very different. This is um, actually words that Daniel spoke as opposed to um, a vision that he sees. Now that comes later in the chapter, but you can see in these opening verses and even for the next eight or 10 verses um, is Daniel uh, going before the Lord. So there's a couple of things I'd like to point out as we get into this um, chapter, you see again in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. Okay, the Chaldeans are simply uh, those who would have been in the province of Babylonia. Uh, Chaldea was actually a, a small uh, tribal sect that was in the southern part of Babylon, but that's what they all used as their name. That's the language they spoke. So they're all the Chaldeans, that's simply the kingdom of Babylon, um, so, and the city of Babylon. And again, we see this name Darius. You remember back at the end of chapter four, chapter five, 
um, we were introduced to this character, Darius. Um, I wanna turn back there just for a second. And the very last verse, I believe it is, yeah. So this is when Belshazzar is king of Babylon and we have the handwriting on the wall. And then the, uh, that very night, uh, Belshazzar is killed. And then verse 31 of chapter five, so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. And we talked about this in, in great detail, actually. Um, most people, most uh, translators and Bible scholars today believe that Darius the Mede um, was indeed Cyrus the Great himself. Um, and that's what they teach, and they have their arguments for that out of the ancient documents. Um, but as you know, I, that's not the tack that I take. I, I believe that this Darius the Mede um, was Cyaxares II uh, out of the kingdom of Media. And this verse is really what convinces me that that is true. Because notice there's a couple of things given about Darius in this verse. The first is that it's explicitly stated that he's of Median descent, or at least his father is of Median descent. And his father's name is Ahasuerus. Now we know who Cyrus's father was, and his name was not Ahasuerus. So that kind of gives us a little bit of information. And then here explicitly it's given that Darius is of Median descent. And Cyrus was not. Cyrus was of Persian descent. So um, this verse, I believe this Darius here, is the same Darius that we saw back in chapters 5 and all throughout chapter 6. He's called the king. Um, and certainly Cyrus was a king of Persia. Um, Cyaxares was a king of Media. And so I believe that they both co-reigned whenever Medo-Persia took over Babylon. Um, those who believe that Cyrus the, the Great believe that Cyrus the Great defeated Media 10 years prior to Babylon falling, and then he was the only king when the kingdom, when Babylon fell. But that's not explicitly stated in the Persian cuneiforms. Um, it's not explicitly stated by anybody other than Xenophon who wrote for the Persians his history. So of course he, like we've said, all historians are biased. He would have been biased towards the Persians. So um, there are other writers who wrote about the same time as he did who disagree with him on who was king. So in the end, this verse convinces me that Darius who took over Babylon, it says he became king of the Chaldeans, that means of the Babylonians, um, was of Median descent and was Cyaxares II. Um, we won't know till we get to the other side and then we will know clearly, but um, you have to choose which way you're gonna go. And so that's what I believe. I believe this Darius is the same Darius um, we saw back in chapter 5, and we said so whenever we were going through that, that we'll see him later. And so that's what convinces me of this. Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon from 550 to 539 B.C. 
and then they fell to the Babylonians in 539. Saxeres becomes king and is called, is, his throne name is Darius, because we'll see a lot of guys um, throughout the Persian Empire use Darius as their name. Um, more like we use president, or someone would have used emperor. So they used the name Darius to represent the office, whereas men have other names that they were given by birth. So um, it says in verse 2, in the first year of his reign, so the date, like Daniel did back in chapter 7 and in chapter 8, where he gave us time stamps, the chapter 7 was the first year of the reign of Belshazzar. Uh, chapter 8 was the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. And now here, 9 is the first year after Belshazzar is killed. And Darius becomes king. So the year is 539 to 538 B.C. Okay, because that becomes important when we start naming how many years are given here. But it, with with a lot of confidence, we can say it's 538 B.C. when Daniel has this, um, when he goes to the Lord in prayer, and then his prayer is answered, and ultimately he's given another description of what will happen in the future. And so um, we'll see all that as this is unfolded. Um, okay, so... Um, and if you think about this, Daniel was taken um, into captivity in 605 B.C. Okay, it's now 538 B.C. That's 67 years that he's been in captivity, and he probably was 13, 15 years old when he went into captivity. So Daniel's like 80 years old or 80 plus years old. So he's, I mean, for the, this day and time, he's very, very old man, um, but still apparently doing fine. Um, so it's 10 years. No, it's not right. It's, it's eight years since he had the, the vision of chapter 8. So a lot of silence there for Daniel as he just went about doing the king's work for the next eight years, not in, in the Babylonian um, well, all throughout the Babylonian kingdom to its very end. You remember the purple robe getting put on him? Apparently, when Darius took it over, um, Daniel was clearly still prominent, but must have aided him in some way, because you remember that he set up uh, three main guys over his kingdom, and Daniel was one of those. And then ultimately, the other two and all the people underneath, all three of them, get killed by the lions when they're thrown into the lion's den. So the only guy left is Daniel, Daniel and Darius. There's nobody else who was in leadership of the kingdom left because they were all eaten by the lions. So we talked about that at the end of chapter um, 6. So, um, all right, and so Daniel says that he gives us this time stamp of what Jeremiah said he apparently had the scroll that Jeremiah had written. Jeremiah um, wrote his scroll some 35 to 40 years before this takes place. So uh, after Babylon uh, had taken over Jerusalem, but maybe in the middle 
of that, of that time in which they were in captivity, Jeremiah finished his writings. And so Daniel must have gotten that scroll somehow. Either it was given to the Babylonians or to the Persians or, not, or to Daniel personally. Not really sure how he got it, but he has the writings that Jeremiah wrote. And so he's reading them. You notice he calls them um, the books of the number of the years uh, which Jeremiah the prophet had revealed for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem. And I, I did took some time, and I'm trying to work my way through the book of Jeremiah, trying to take some notes as I go. And what he says repeatedly in the book of Jeremiah, you don't get this out of either Ezekiel or Daniel, is that the Lord certainly brought Nebuchadnezzar against Jerusalem to make it desolate, not only Jerusalem, but all of Judah and the surrounding nations to make them all desolate. But multiple times in the book of Jeremiah, it says, but not a complete destruction. So while the land was desolate, very few people there, there's some measure that God held them back from doing so that it's not complete desolation, which you get out of the books of Ezekiel and Daniel, looks like it's total devastation. You read um, Jeremiah's Lamentations, and I mean, there's cannibalism going on in Jerusalem. There's, there's uh, all the buildings have been burned. It's just a dismal, dismal place. And the only people left are the very poorest of the poor because the Babylonians didn't care about them. And so it seems pretty desolate to me, but multiple times in Jeremiah, it says that the Lord did not allow a complete desolation, destruction of, of everything that was there. And I guess the reason for that is because he certainly intended for Israel, <clears throat> excuse me, Israel to go back. Um, and so you need something to go back to. So there's at least a little something there but it says that the desolation would be completed in 70 years. That's what Jeremiah wrote. So you read through the book of Jeremiah trying to find this, and you get all the way to chapter um, 25 before you find it. So look at Jeremiah 25. And I'm going to start in verse 8 to give us a little perspective of what he's writing about here. Jeremiah 25, 8, and this whole chapter is about, uh, is a prophecy about the captivity of the people of Judah. And so in verse 8, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all the nations around about. And I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the mill millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land will be desolation and a horror 
and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation declares the Lord for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans and I will make it in an everlasting desolation. Okay, so um, God's just about destroying everybody, right? And you noticed, I mean, very clearly, he says that Nebuchadnezzar is his servant in this. He says, my servant Nebuchadnezzar. So um, it's very clear that God was orchestrating the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem and the captivity of the people that they were taken far away um, according to his will and that they will return or at least the Babylonians will have them in captivity for only 70 years. Okay, so you start doing a few calculations here. Um, when does that 70 years begin? Well, Daniel was taken captive in the first deportation of the Jews in 605 BC. So 70 years from then would be 535 BC. Or if you take it from the destruction of Jerusalem, which was in 586 BC, then it would be 511, no, 516 BC when 70 years would be completed. So the year is 538 BC when Daniel is starting this prayer. So we're not to the 70 years yet, but they're in view. They're, it's coming up. It could be as little as three years until 70 years is done because Daniel has been in captivity for 67 years. So maybe that's when it, the, the counting starts. Uh, don't find many people who write about that. You know, it's just 70 years. That's how long they're going to be in captivity. Well, when did that start? And so I started in 605 B.C., uh, well before um, the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, so, you know, that was, didn't come for another 19 years. Um, when, and it took them, by the way, when they sieged Jerusalem, it took a year and a half to get over the walls. You know, you build up stuff, you cut down trees and you build up a ramp and you put dirt on it. And ultimately, that's what it means to siege someone is that you go over the wall instead of through the walls. And you do that by building a ramp to give you passage. And so it took 18 months. I mean, it took a long time for them to get over the walls in Jerusalem. So you can imagine the people in Jerusalem for 18 months living off of whatever was in the city when the siege started. So pretty desolate. A lot of people dying simply by starvation. Um, so um, anyway, I, I digress. Um, 70 years and it would be completed. So when Daniel starts this prayer, it's not that the 70 years have been completed, but they're probably about to be completed, maybe in two to three years. It's going to be done. So Daniel begins to pray to the Lord. You see that in verse 3, back in Daniel chapter 9, that um, he realizes that the 70 years is about up. So um, maybe he had never read that in the book of Jeremiah before, because he never had this response before. So as he's reading through all that Jeremiah wrote, 
he comes across this section that says it's only going to last 70 years. And he then turns to the Lord in prayer in a very, very humble way. You can see it says, um, I turn my attention to, to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So those are the three things that represent Daniel's humility before the Lord. Fasting so that he can concentrate just on prayer. Sackcloth, which is not comfortable. So you're not going to fall asleep when you're wearing itchy sackcloth. And then ashes, you know, he being, I don't know, it doesn't say he heaped them on his head, but you put ashes on yourself to represent your humility, your, um, that you're going to return to the dust of the earth. You know, very, very humble actions by Daniel as he begins this prayer. And then some of the things that he says in this prayer are just astonishing. Because before we get into the prayer, just remember with me who Daniel is. Daniel, um, we looked at this when we've talked about him at the very beginning of the book, um, probably or pretty certainly born during the reign of Josiah, the king of Judah. Okay, and Josiah was one of the few really good kings of of uh, Judah turned to the Lord in great ways. During his reign, they discovered the book that had all the ordinances that are supposed to be done by the Jews and how do you do the Passover and how do you do all the festivals. And so Josiah reinstituted all those and turned to the Lord in such a way that the scripture explicitly states that he was the best king that Judah or the Israelites ever had. So, I mean, just look at this for a second. Back in 2 Kings chapter 23, we've looked at this before, but it's worth just thinking about who this guy is who's about to offer this prayer because some of the things that he says are just astonishing. So chapter Second, Second Kings, chapter 23, verses 24 and 25. Ultimately, um, <clears throat> Josiah is killed by the king of Egypt. King of Egypt comes and says, come out to meet me. Um, I, I bring greetings. And so Josiah goes out to meet him and winds up getting killed by that guy. So he was very deceptive in calling Jeremiah to himself. But that's in 2 Chronicles, not in 2 Kings. 2 Kings talks about the good things that he did. So 2 Kings 23, verses 24 and 25. Moreover, Josiah removed the mediums and the spiritists and the teraphim and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem that, so that he might confirm the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him, before Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might 
according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. So out of all the kings of Israel as a joined nation, and then Israel as the northern nation, and Judah as the southern nation, out of all the kings that ever reigned over any of those, Josiah is the greatest. He's greater than King David, even though King David was a man after God's heart. This, that passage we just read says he's the greatest king that Israel ever had. And there was never one like him before him or after him. And David would have been before him. And so Josiah turned to the Lord in such a way that the scripture calls him the greatest king that Israel ever had. And so Daniel has the privilege, Ezekiel also, of being born during the reign of Josiah and reared during the reign of Josiah, which is where he got his devotion to the scriptures and to the ordinances of the Lord. If he would have been born at other times during the kingdom of Judah, he could have been born under one of those bad kings who did abominations before the Lord, and he would have never known anything about the book of the law. He would have not known about Moses and all the ordinances of God. So God in his plan and in his graciousness has Josiah as king when Daniel and Ezekiel are born, so they're reared under a good king. Now they experience some bad kings later on before their deportation, but apparently their devotion to the, to the law was such that it endured during those times. And, and you know, Daniel's taken as a young guy, maybe 13, maybe 15, maybe 17, um, deported to Babylon in 605 BC, so not long after this, um, this passage. So raised under, in that good time of Judah, is why when he gets to Babylon, he is unwilling to eat the food of the king. And you, you remember the stories, and he and his three friends are the only four guys who do not bow to the king's food and to all that the king offers them. Um, they are the ones who excel in the studies so that they do better than all the other guys who came from um, Judah with them. And they're you know, the head of the class, and so they're put into um, high positions. And then uh, Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's uh, dream and he's made second in command of all of Babylon. And then he hires his three friends to be the guys underneath him. And they just continue on throughout the whole, and then they, the three go into the furnace, um, and they come out un, unsinged, and they're elevated even more and given more wealth because of that. So these four guys did very well during the kingdom of Babylon um, by the grace of God and by the plan of God. And so um, they kept their devotion to the Lord. You know, Daniel, ultimately, when you get to Darius, much later, is thrown into the lion's den for being faithful to pray three times a day. So his whole life is just this legacy of faithfulness and righteousness all the way through. 
willing to go into the lion's den. I mean, what's he going to do? The king's going to throw him there, and God graciously shuts the mouths of the lions, and he's unharmed because he's been faithful, and God still wanted him to have some visions and give him more information so that we could read it today. And so you think about Daniel, and out of all the guys who came out of Judah, all those who are living in Babylon, all the people who ever came out of that kingdom, Daniel is probably the most righteous man there is out of all that kingdom at this time. There are there's some other good guys because they're the ones who go back to, um, to Judah. I mean, there is uh, Zerubbabel, there is um, Ezra goes back, Nehemiah goes back. So there are other people who are faithful to the Lord who return to uh, Judah and Jerusalem. But out of all those guys, I mean, here is Daniel um, being as faithful as ever reading the book that Jeremiah gave to him. And then God reveals to him it's only 70 years. Now, people would have heard Jeremiah say that, but probably went over their heads like everything else that Jeremiah warned them about. But here Daniel discovers this nugget written in the book of Jeremiah, and he turns to the Lord humbly in prayer. So you have to keep that in mind. That's who Daniel is as you go through this prayer, because then you begin to learn some principles of prayer, and you read what Daniel prayed, and you're just overwhelmed by it because this is the most righteous man in the land who is saying some of these things. So we'll just go through um, verse 4 maybe here just to get into the prayer. He said, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. So he starts out by adoration and praise and of God, which is always the right way to start your prayers because it orients your thinking and your perspective. And so you always start a prayer with acknowledging who God is. And that's what Daniel does here. He acknowledges who God is. Now, interestingly, he says, God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. What does that sound like? In the New Testament, what does that sound like? Verse out of Romans? Yeah, 828, God causes all things to work together for good for those who, what? Love God, right? So the same thing being said here. It's not about sacrifices. It's not about bringing the right offerings, the right incense, any of that is not what God ever desired. Right here, Daniel understands it, and he says, God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness to those who love him and keep his commandments, which is the same thing that Romans 8.28 says. God who, those who love him. So um, this is what God has always been after by his people. It hasn't changed any. And Daniel understands that. And so he acknowledges that God is faithful. God is full of goodness all the time. 
regardless of what happens and regardless of what he does, he is the very definition of righteousness and goodness. Even when he causes Jerusalem to be destroyed by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel understands that God is still righteous in that judgment of Israel and is still loving kind, will give loving kindness to those who love him, to those who are devoted to him. That's Daniel's perspective. Daniel understands that and he acknowledges that because look at, and then we'll talk about this next time, but verse five, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances, meaning what? We don't love you because we don't keep your ordinances and your commandments. Same, same thing we would teach today. Someone who doesn't keep the law of God, doesn't live according to the scriptures, does not love God. So Daniel understands this. And notice that he says not these bad people have rebelled against you and sinned and committed iniquity. He says what? We. We. This is the most righteous man in the nation. And he identifies with those who are, who are his kinsmen. He humbles himself before God and he says, we have sinned. He's praying for the nation and he, of which he's part. And he acknowledges that he, not only the people he lives among, but he himself has sinned against God. So this is a astounding humility of the most righteous man in the land the most faithful guy, that he identifies with this nation to such a degree, he says, we have sinned. Right, which goes, I mean, when he says that I'm keeping what I swore to your fathers, you go all the way back to Abraham and what God, because that's who the fathers are, right? The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And it, Right. And he goes right to the upper room with the Lord when he says, if you love me, God, of course, you keep my commandments. Yeah, it, it's never been different. God has always based his covenant love for people based upon their faithfulness. Always. And their love for him. Um, when you, you know, the promises that God gave to Abraham, which is what Daniel is remembering here. Because remember, he's raised in a good time. He knew the book of the law. He knew the writings of Moses. So, I mean, raised in, a, in the perfect time to have this understanding. And those promises that God gave to Abraham, 
he repeated in full to Isaac and then repeated again in full to Jacob. You can find them in the scriptures. They're, they're, you know, nobody ever talks about them. They're kind of hidden. Everybody always talks about what he said to Abraham. But he repeated the same promises to Isaac and to Jacob. And so God was faithful through that. And there's a lot of years there. Um, because, you know, after Jacob, then they go into, into Egypt for 400 years. And God doesn't forget about them. And, and this is all in the mind of Daniel. As he's reading, as he, he's reading the book of Jeremiah, he's remembering his upbringing, he's remembering the law of Moses, and he says God is faithful and loving kind toward those who love him and keep his commandments and ordinances. And then he says, we have not, meaning we have not shown you the love for you to keep your covenant with us. <laughs> right, no. And, well, and you know why that is true? You just have to think about it for a minute. Because you've been made a new creation, and you've been given the mind of Christ, which is what? A desire to please God, please his Father, right? That was always his desire. So you've been given the mind of Christ in your new creation, and that mind desires to be obedient to God. Right. So, um, it, it, yeah, it goes pretty deep, right? <laughs> Becomes astounding when you think about what Daniel is saying here and, and the implications of what he says. So we'll stop, pick back up in this verse 4 next week. And um, if the Lord wills, we'll continue to walk through this prayer. I told you we would spend a couple weeks at least in this prayer of Daniel, because there's a lot that he says in here that informs us how to pray today. Thanks for your time.